best entrepreneurs in the world get told no over and over and over again. I didn't know how I was going to make it work, but I was damn determined I was going to make it work. Not realizing how much better television was going to make me at my job. I thought all you needed was the idea and then you were rich. Welcome to the Blue Collar Business School Podcast. Welcome back to the Blue Collar Business School Podcast. As always, my name is Julian Clayton, and let's jump right in it. Uh, this week's guest is Dave Salinas, and he's 20 years into his career at this point. I think he's probably accomplished something closer to 40 or 50 years worth of work. The reason I love Dave's story so much is because at Dave's level, he is probably the most street smart individual I have ever met and even with all his background his street smarts are really what have put him where he is today so let's get right into Dave's story I am a son of an immigrant my father came from Peru when he was 16 years old he worked a lot of blue-collar jobs mostly dishwasher he was a porter uh, cleaning buildings in in New York City and Queens moved up to a maintenance man and ultimately to a superintendent for some buildings was making you know thirty thousand dollars a year didn't speak really great english and had it rough grew up in an area that was predominantly italian and irish right on the border of brooklyn which was a hundred percent i shouldn't say a hundred percent but very close to a hundred percent african-american so it was a really interesting sort of place we were like the poor spanish kids living in the neighborhood but, you know, my father had some really good advice for me when I was growing up and I took those pieces of advice and sort of just had the ambition to run with those things as I, as I got older. So what kind of advice did your dad give you back then? Never be afraid to ask a question. He, basically what he said is the worst answer you're going to get is no. Right. So, so do you want to sell me the sweater that you're wearing? You might be like, maybe or no. No, it's my favorite sweater. Yeah, and I'm gonna be like, well, what's special about it? And it, so long story short, I could get into question after question after question, and and to not be afraid. People are afraid, and I think that holds people back, especially you know asking people like, do you have the means to do this? Where are you in your in your career in the cycle of your project or anything like that? Uh, I had an investor here today to, talking about a, a a project that I'm working on. And, you know, point blank after the pitch, I said, you know, what are the boxes you need to check to get this deal done to circle this money? And he was like, honestly, I'm going to ask my mom. <laughs> <laughs> he asked his mom to try the product, but, but just everybody sort of looked at me like, I can't believe you just asked that question like that. And I was just like, you know, if you don't ask, you're not going to get the answer. And it may be the answer right there is no. And you could just let go and move on. And so that that leads you down to new pathways as you get more mature in business, which is getting to know fast allows you to move on, right? Sure. And learn. So uh, so so I sort of took these little lessons from my father like that. I had incredible ambition. I think the ambition was partly because I wanted more than we had, right? I remember sort of you know digging through the, the sofa cushions to find money and like to to buy stuff and you know, not being able to afford some of the stuff that other kids in the neighborhood were getting or the things we saw on TV or whatnot. So I definitely had had created my own ambition, my own idea in my mind. 
From there, grew up in Queens, moved to Connecticut. I went to the University of Bridgeport, which was a complete accident. My brother was the first to go to college. He went to uh, Binghamton University in New York. When he finished, he decided he wanted to go and be a chiropractor. So he decided to sign up for University of Bridgeport Chiropractic School in Connecticut. And one day he asked me if I would take a ride with him to Connecticut. And I said, where the fuck is Connecticut? And he <laughs> straight up, I said, where, where is Connecticut? And he said it was like 20, 20, 30 minutes past my grandmother's house, which was right on the Whitestone Bridge in New York. Um, so I, I said, all right, take, I'll take a ride with you. And we drove to Connecticut and I wound up signing up for college right there on the spot, uh, which is unheard of because the four year private college, uh, how that went down, talk about asking a question. I'm standing there talking to this girl. I can't remember her name, but if I saw her, if she saw me in the street today, she would remember me and I would remember her. But uh, I was talking to this, uh, this black girl that was a security guard and I was looking out the window and I was like, man, it's beautiful out here. And she was like, are you serious? You're in Bridgeport. And I was like, <laughs> looks beautiful to me, right? Because it was different. I was, I, was, I was starting to, I was open to new possibilities, right? So that's, that's another thing, be open to new possibilities. And she's like, no, she's like, it's wild here. And I was like, come on, it's Connecticut. Like I'm from, I'm from Queens and Brooklyn. Like that's wild. And that was sort of my view. And she was like, well, she's like, I guess. And I just, I looked at the, a sign across the way and it said uh, admissions. And I walked over to the door and I said, uh, and the guy was, there was one person, there was like six o'clock at night. There was one guy there that was wrapping up his, his shift or whatever. And he was leaving. No one else was in the space. And I knocked on his, his door and I said, Hey, he said, what can I do for you? And I said, can I go here? Yeah, that, that's a stereotypical Brooklyn question to somebody yeah. in an admissions office, right? Can I go here? And he said, uh, he said, excuse me. He goes, did you fill out an application? And I said, no. He goes, did you take your SAT? And I said, no. And he said, did you graduate high school? And I said, yes. And he said, well, what were your grades like? And I said, whatever you needed to graduate. Because I wasn't even thinking about grades and stuff like that. Like my father didn't understand. My father used to explain it to me like you have to graduate high school. That was the that was the directive. Get this get a, get this piece of paper and you're good. Right. And then after that, it was like, you've got to go to college. So I was like, all right, I get I guess I take this paper to this paper to this place and say, here, can I get in? he actually started a conversation with me and that's where you can win, right? Sure. When you're, when you lack things, you can, you can win through your personality, through your character, through your authenticity, uh, through your realness. And, and that's where I won. And he sat down with me and he was like, so, so tell me, why did you, why did you have like mediocre grades? And I was like, because I was hustling. I was making money. Like I needed to, to earn, I needed to do these things. I had stresses. I lost my mother when I was 12 years old. Like, I, like, you know, I had a little sister that I had to look out for, you know, I needed to do the things that I needed to do. And he just kept prying questions. Well, tell me about this and tell me about that. One of the questions that he asked me, I have a skill for business development, for selling. And he said, how did you, uh, where did that come from? And I told him a story about when I worked at a pizzeria when I was 12 years old, 13 years old, I was a busboy, And they told me that, and they broke down for me, right? you and I were talking about this earlier before the podcast is like sort of things aren't that aren't that hard. They're actually pretty simple. Right. So at 13 years old, 12 years old, I asked the waiter, I said, how do I get paid? And they said, well, you get $4 an hour plus a percentage of our tips. And I said, okay, well, how do you get tips? And they said, well, we get a percentage of the bill. 
yeah. And I was like, so, so the idea is to get the bill higher. And they said, yeah. And I said, well, how do you do that? And they said, we well, sell specials, you know, specials are priced higher or you sell bottles of wine. You know, that's a nice $20 bill on the bill. And I said, okay, great. So, you know, I waited, I learned a little bit, went over to the first table a couple of weeks later. And I was just like, Hey, so a guy and a girl sitting down, you know, gentleman and his girlfriend or wife or whatever. And I just walked over to the table and I said, Hey, uh, here's your waters. Here's your bread. And they were like, thank you so much. And I was like, you're going to buy a bottle, a bottle of wine for this lovely lady. <laughs> so I'm like the cute kid. Right. That they're not thinking about. And the guy's like, yeah, kid, get me a bottle of Merlot. And I ran over to the waiters and I was like, I just sold a bottle of Merlot. And they were like, you did what? And I said, yeah, I just sold a bottle of Merlot. And, and little next thing you know, the waiters start giving me extra money and they want David on their shifts. So I'm making 50 bucks, 60 bucks, a hundred bucks in a, in a four hour shift at 13 years old when minimum wage is $4 and my friends are, shoot, are, are sweeping floors in the supermarket. You know, those learning the game, everything is a game, you know, paying attention to the rules of the game and then designing them yourself or, or playing within them or outside of them is part of the whole thing. I think that's what happened in the college that day. I told him that story and he was like, He's like, I find you really interesting. He's like, you know what? He's like, congratulations. He stood up. He shook my hand. He's like, welcome to the University of Bridgeport. What do you want your major to be? <laughs> and you didn't have any idea about that either, did you? I had, oh, no. I was like, what? I, was like I don't know. I was like, a, a biology. My brother's going to be a doctor. I might as well be a doctor too. And that was it. I, went, I wound up taking biology. And then he asked me about uh, another thing that this is the game changer. This is where life changes, right? Being present, being there, being in the moment. So the guy said to me, uh, you have to pick an elective. He's like, you probably shouldn't take too many courses. You don't want to weigh yourself down if you're not a college, if you're not into college or whatever. And I said, okay, great. And I said, well, well, what's an elective? And he's, cause I you remember, I'm not, I'm not going to my counselors and learning the game. My dad sure as hell doesn't know it. Right. So I was like, what's an elective? And he said, uh, you know, like art, music, history, you know, something to lighten the load of the courses that, you know, where it's more fun. And I said, my father tells me that all that stuff is bullshit. I said, why don't you give me something useful like business? And he was like, all right, what do you want in business? And I was like, marketing would be cool. And he gave me a marketing class. And I was a professor that, at that marketing class that changed the game for me. Because I, I, I was horrible in biology. Chemistry was terrible. Just wasn't interested in it. Wasn't passionate in it. Didn't love it. So I wasn't in it. But then like marketing was like reviewing case studies and like, you know, using your creative brain to solve problems and that kind of stuff. And the professor was an old Madison Avenue advertising guy. And uh, man, I just, I was just all in after that. And I switched my major to business and marketing uh, and then graduated in four years, got my degree. And that was it. That was college. So after that, that's when life gets interesting. Sure. As if what kept you in what kept you in Connecticut? I got to ask that. Like you, you stepped out of your comfort zone. You end up in Bridgeport of all places. And uh, but but you stayed in Connecticut. Yeah. Um, I'd lie if I say it was any one thing. It was definitely like a, a, a an amalgamation of, of things. For starters, where I grew up was was a pretty, pretty bad area. I don't want to say that the people were bad, but there were a lot of bad apples in, a, in and around me. Right. You know, a lot of people were heavy drug users, a lot of criminal criminal activity happening. The influence was just terrible. 
right? Like in my, in my house, my father's like, if you get arrested, don't call me. And I was like, yeah. all right. And I got arrested when I was young and I called, they're like, you get one phone call. And I was like, all right, Hey dad, I'm in jail. And he was like, and he hung up on me. And I was like, damn it, I wasted my call, <laughs> but I should have known better. It was like people that I grew up with, it was like normal for them. Like they had lots of people in jail and they wrote Christmas cards to everybody in jail, you know? So it was different. So I was sort of leaving that. I didn't want to be around that anymore. And uh, I learned a lot from them. I learned, you know, it's, I know now in, in hindsight, I know, I realized that if they had better parents, if they had um, better mentors, if they had better opportunities or if ha they had seen other opportunities, some of these people would probably be the richest, most wealthiest, strongest people in the world because they were so smart, but they were so smart for the wrong thing. So I, I don't fault them at all, but I was sort of running away from that. I love to learn. I love new. And I, I think that I was really stifled in that environment versus Connecticut was like, it's like a new world, new possibilities. I also felt found that it was close enough to the major markets for me to get in and out and travel to me was nothing. Like if you lived in Queens and you were going to Manhattan, it's an hour, you know, like you, you taking a train, you could do it in less, but between the bus and this and that, you, you, travel is always going to be, you know, we, we, we used to go to, to, to the different malls It take you 45 minutes to an hour to get to these places. So commuting in within an hour to me was relatively local and Bridgeport to New York city to where I lived, I could make it in, a, in, in less than an hour if there's no traffic, probably breaking laws, but at the same time, like it's still, you could do it, you know? So uh, it wasn't so far away that it wasn't familiar. And then, and then as I got older, I started to realize that something that I really like, one of my superpowers is influence. You know, I'm not saying it's, it's, it's sort of a, I don't want to say it's a cop out to be, you know, a big fish in a small pond, but you know, I, I have a lot of influence in Connecticut. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm well known, um, you know, I'm comfortable, but you know, maybe, maybe that would have not been the case in New York. Maybe I would be like just a, uh, like a, a little tiny fish in a big, big, big pond. Maybe, you know, maybe that's, if you're huge in New York, maybe that says more about you. I don't know, but I like it. I, I like, I like where I, where I sit on the, in the food chain. Sure. Sure. No, it makes a lot of sense. And it, I think you're right about those guys from your childhood. Like they weren't pointed in the right direction, right? My old man used to tell me, you got to figure out which side of the wheelbarrow you want to be on. You want to be, you want to be holding the handles. You'll be pointing at the guys holding the handles. That's up to you. Precisely. Like I, I have legit been on. I've been in, I don't know, maybe a dozen newspapers and magazines, like covers and like articles and write-ups for good positive stuff. And when I was growing up, I used to see my friends on the covers in, in handcuffs. Literally. Yeah. Like in college, people would be like, Yo, go get the, the Daily News. And Sal's on it. <laughs> and he's literally like <laughs> on it in cuffs getting dragged away. I mean, so far, it's, I've made some, the right choices. So where where'd you land after college? What's your, what's your first move? So throughout college, I had a bunch of different hustles and stuff that I was doing to make money. But towards the end, I dibbled and dabbled in a couple different jobs. I ran sales for an electrical contracting company, small company. Didn't love that. He was a good businessman and all this stuff. And it, like as I joined him, he was getting divorced and it just dismantled him. So I sort of lost the taste for that. Then I joined another company where I was doing sales 
in a call center environment and within a couple of weeks got promoted up the the food chain to managing you know dozens of people didn't like the ownership there which is probably starting to get to like a a pattern in my life where i disagree with ownership like i i think that they could be doing better they should be thinking differently but there was still one more job in between is that after college graduation 2002ish i saw an ad in a newspaper for a job in sales for an internet marketing company and it just said $25 an hour plus commission and it was a company here in New Haven that that's all you knew it was a new, literally a newspaper ad 2002 right so like you could get there was internet stuff going on for sure and monster was out and all that stuff but i was looking everywhere so, so you you got to look under every rock so i see a newspaper ad and i answer it and i go down to this office in new haven i have no idea what the company does i can't find any information out because there's no company name it's legit a newspaper ad and it changed my life i walked into this shitty little office in new haven downtown new haven and i sit down with this guy who's like a half ass sales manager and he tells me that they do this stuff called SEO and i said what's that and he said we manipulate websites to get them to the top of the search engines for certain keywords and i remember looking at him and just going you can do that <laughs> and he was like he's like yeah and i was like wow i was like that's next level i was like i got to be a part of this and within 90 days of taking that job i negotiated a higher salary the 25 an hour turned out to be a scam also an issue just unethical business practices from the ceo at the time but uh within like 3 months or so i forget exactly what the timing was i wound up taking over the sales department fired a bunch of people hired up my own team i was writing new scripts for everybody i was learning every part of the business so i was diving in i wanted to know how the algorithms were working i wanted to understand how like what were other parts of internet marketing and then i started to learn about emails and paid which was overture before before google adwords it was overture which which yahoo bought and i just dove in like here i am i'm just like this is amazing i want in and so i just made it my my thing and took that job until about 2006 i left there wasn't happy wasn't happy with and from an i'm an ambitious person i want more and i'm totally fine being a number 2 i'm fine being a number 3 4 5 6 10 i don't really care as long as i'm part of an organization that wants to thrive to be better i'm totally fine playing a position but that's not what i i had there So I wound up leaving and starting a company with this guy Pete, uh Pete Sena, who became my business partner, co-founder of Digital Surgeons, which was a digital agency. Now it's a, a creative consult we call it a creative consultancy. And uh he and I wound up starting up that company uh together with $5,000 in 2006. That's when sort of my stock went like this and then started to do that. So in 4 years you learned the ins and outs of Every, you you got everything you needed from that company and if you'd have stayed there you were stalled. Well from a from a business perspective from a business development strategy perspective and an industry perspective I felt like I had gotten a lot operationally how to run a company you know HR bookkeeping finance like I still had a ton to learn. But but from a can I, is there a market to be had check that box 
I know that I know that there's money to be made here. I know that this could be the be, this could be the beginning of something special. Yeah, and and knowing you and your personality, you were probably looking at it like there's way more money to be made here that I'm able to capture here. I'm gonna yeah. step out and grab what I know I can grab. A hundred percent. And the crazy thing was, is I was I was earning already. I was making probably close to six figures, more than six figures when I stepped away at, and I was 26 years old. Right. So like for me, like if you go back in the podcast and you listen, my father was making thirty thousand dollars a year. So I'm I'm easily four, three, four X him already. And now I'm about to jump ship. Initially, we thought we could raise money, put together a good business plan, do the stuff we were taught in college. It's easy business plan, go raise capital. And that turned out to be a, a complete shit show because we didn't know what we were doing and timing wise we were talking to investors that were heavy real estate 2006 what comes next yeah next lesson welcome to timing <laughs> yeah yeah exactly right? got the best idea in the world you feel strong you're full of uh what's the, the saying piss and vinegar right like and all of a sudden boom market drops you know, we're pitching them one day and they're like, oh, this is great. We're definitely in. Count us in. Like, we, you know, we just want to see a full presentation. We're like, awesome. Next thing you know, like 30, 40 days later, timing, we walk into a room and these guys are like looking, you know, looking at their nails during the presentation, doodling. And I'm like, what? These guys aren't even paying attention to us. And then one of them was like, yeah, the, all these guys just got hosed. Like they're, 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 ter they're terrified right now. They know that the market is crashing and they're, that's their whole business, right? It's housing, real estate in general, except for one guy who said that he was going to invest in us. He was a good, good dude. Uh, he became one of my friends and mentors. He was an older gentleman. And he's like, listen, he's like, he's like, I'm in. He's like, put me, put me down for like 80,000. He's like, and let's figure it out. And we start negotiating with him, going through like lawyers, and we, we hired our lawyer. And we got we putting together all of the negotiation, the paperwork, and this this dude dies. Oh God! Literally dies in the middle in the middle of everything. And 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 what's what's even more heartbreaking is not the fact that we didn't get the capital to start the business because it probably it's I, I I always think that like everything's meant to be. Sure. But like this guy was like one of the most incredible people uh, like that you will meet which is leads me to like the thing that I harp about the most is like build your network, talk to people, find your friends, find your, find your mentors. This guy said things to me that like fast nickels are better than slow dimes. <laughs> and, and, and that approach doesn't always work. Right. But it's, it's adaptable, right? Like if you prototyping a product, right, which you've done, right. You've had tech products. Like you, you, you need fast nickels to get that, that, that input. The last thing you want to do is get the perfect users. Cause then th that's going to take too long. Exactly. You need to be quick and iterate versus for us, fast nickels better than slow dimes was like, Hey, you got money. <laughs> we'll take it. <laughs> like we just, we need cash. Cash is King right now for us. And then later on, I slowed down the nickels and I was going for the dimes and the quarters and the, and the dollars. But this guy was great. And he dies in the middle. He has a, uh, I, 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 the whole situation was crazy. And so then Pete and I were just like, what are we going to do? And we were like, fuck it. We'll just go at it. We get, I said, all right, well, I was like, I live on my own. I've been living on my own for, you know, over a decade already. So it's not like I got a, my mom and dad in my backyard like you do. 
I was like, um, so I can put in like 2,500 bucks. I've been, you know, I'm, I'm walking away from a big salary. I don't think I can, can do much more than that. And he was like, yeah, me too. So we put $5,000 in a bank account. We launched and we paid ourselves $300 a week each Oof. for, for eight months. For eight months, so you think about it, you're making a hundred thousand. You don't, and you, and I was 26 making a hundred thousand, which means I had no money in the bank. Yeah, you spent uh, every dollar of that cash. Yeah, I was in the clubs and in the bars and driving a car you didn't need, living in an apartment you couldn't afford. I got it. I remember that age. Dating girls that I shouldn't have been dating. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, 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 and it was just dollar in, dollar out. So now we just start hustling, man, and, and from there. First year we did half a million. We did half a million in revenue. Next year we doubled it, right? And so I got to ask you: Do you think if you had that money, do you think if you had had that that bigger pile of cash, that you'd have done that much revenue in the first year, or do you think the hustle is what made it happen? I think the hustle. Yeah. So I'll tell you a story. After the first year, I think after the first year or the second year, I forget exactly what it was. My brother, when he graduated from chiropractic school, my brother was. Um, he went to go work in the Manhattan for a chiropractor and he was working in the guy's office. And then the guy said he wanted to sell his practice to my brother, which was sort of always the plan. Right. And so my father had helped my brother buy his practice. So he gave him, you know, six figures and he was like, pay me back. How my father got that money is a different, is his hustle story for him to tell one day, but he, he did turn out to, to do pretty well for himself. So I go to my father and I'm like, Hey, pop like listen i i got we're cooking right now and this business is hot and this is the future of marketing and like we got it and you know like if we could just get like a, the same loan that you gave to paul my brother he's like you know that would be so helpful and it would take the noose off the neck because five hundred thousand, we probably made a hundred thousand dollars in profit off that five hundred thousand, but we were still only eating that three hundred dollars because you needed that money in the bank to cash flow your, your your next year no banks were giving you any loans off of one year's numbers no. So, so uh, he said no, and I'm I'm mf'd him. Oh, oh, I was like, you don't love me. <laughs> like, you gave that shit to Paul. What happened? Like, why not me? Blah blah blah. Middle child syndrome. Yeah. Uh, and uh, after the after the fight, he said to me, "You gotta you gotta climb the ladder one step at a time. If you try to jump the steps on the ladder, he goes, you will fall, and falling off a ladder hurts." He didn't say it as elegantly as me because he's got a thick Spanish accent, so it sounded like, "David, you you can't jump steps on a ladder. You're gonna fall. You're gonna break your head or something." <laughs> that, I'm serious. That's how he sounds. He sounds like Tony Montana and Scarface. So he didn't give me the money. And the next year we cranked, and the next year we we doubled up, and we kept doing it, and. Uh, I mean, we've been open for 14 years. You know, we're a multi-million dollar company today. We've got 40 people that work for us. We've worked with everybody from Lady Gaga, Little Wayne, to United Technologies. And like, you know, I, I was uh, head of digital media. I was head of digital media strategy uh, for the US Open, for the tennis event for two straight years. Like we've had a hell of a run. We've done branding for some of the, you know, some companies that you see today in your store. Like the number one technology for golf right now is called Arcos. We named it, branded it, launched it, launched the product, um, you know, invested in it, you know, invested our cash flow and our, our, our profits into the company. 
you know, it's been a, it's been one hell of a ride already. Yeah. Like, you guys are a different, uh, I mean, I don't, agency may be the wrong word, but you're a different group. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've worked with, with marketing companies uh, over the years and they all kind of have, you know, some are obviously better than others, but they all kind of have their own kind of path that they follow. But you guys are, are the first group that I've ever come across that, you know, unlike a, and I'll use a bad example here, but like a McKenzie that just kind of floods you with people and opinions and bills the shit out of you. You, you guys tend to like get your tentacles into a company and learn about what's at the core of that business and who those people are and who are the people that are servicing. I, I don't think I've ever heard of a group that's more hands-on than, than you guys. We're, we're sort of like, um, so someone, we, we actually just did a, a job for a very large publicly traded multi-billion dollar company. And, the, and they just signed us up for, we went from like a $75,000 contract to over a million dollars worth of contracts in three months. And they said that they get more value from us than, than, than they've ever gotten from McKinsey uh, or Accenture. And I think part of the reason why is because they've got best in breed research people and analysts that know how to look at case studies of what other people have done. We have designers and anthropologists and really human people that are just cross-functional, that think outside the box, that approach problems with empathy and truly want to win for our clients. And I just think that we take an approach in that way that separates us. Like we, we tend to over-deliver for everything because sure. that's what a designer does, right? You never hear about an artist, like, like a real artist, like a Michelangelo or, uh, you know, uh, um, I mean, just, just pick any, just mailing it in. It's like, no, it's not done until it's done. Like we want it to be great. Um, and I just think that that's where we sort of step up uh, uh, quite a bit. Uh, for me, my sort of secret sauce as a strategist is not being book smart, is not having the MBA, is not reading the case studies uh, and knowing the language, but knowing people, right? right. So I, I joke around with people all the time. If you told me, David, you know, I'm, I'm looking to raise money using a crowdfunding platform for investors, like net capital or something like that, uh, how would you go about it? I'm like, well, you know, I really like... Uh, Instagram advertising based off of, you know, specific types of targeting. And here I've been collecting all the ones that I've been seeing lately. And I literally screenshot and I record them. And I anything that makes my thumb go like this. Yeah, I, I take a picture of and I store it in a file because I'm so interested in why I stopped. Right. So right. I'm, I'm so I'm constantly thinking about how how people sort of just move throughout life. And that comes out in my thinking. I don't think you get that from, you know, not to, not to, I'll talk about a different school that's not on top of me, but like if you go to Harvard and you, and if you go to Ivy League schools for undergraduate, so you go high school, undergraduate, MBA program, you're not seeing life. No. But because you went to Harvard and you have an MBA, McKinsey's gonna hire you. Right. And then you're going to get placed on a business and you're going to try to outthink me who's touched a thousand businesses already. 
And that's the thing though, is I think part of it is, yeah, I would try to outthink Dave if I'm that person, but more often than not, I think their company culture is like, you got to outbill Dave. You got to get those billable hours in there. You got to, you got to put time on the clock so we can put it on the invoice. Whereas everything I hear coming out of your shop is we got to do the right thing for this customer. This idea is too strong to be let down. You know, we're, we're going to put in the work to solve this problem, not put in the work to build these hours. That's what moves the needle for your business. I think that's the why. That's why you and your your team have the reputation that you have today, mm-hmm. because you're you're even as much as you've grown over the years, you still maintain that that customer focus. That, that you're 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 always leaning in on that. Yeah, I, I used the word human before, not to degrade McKinsey folks, because obviously, like I have empathy for them; they're humans too. But I mean human in the way that like like yesterday I was talking to one of my people and they're like, yeah, we, we, we over delivered by 25 grand on a $75,000 project. And I was like, what, what, are the, what does the client think? They're like, they're absolutely over the moon. They just gave us another, you know, $800,000 worth of work. And I'm like, you know, karma, that's karma, that's karmic energy. Sure. Uh, you know, if, and, and probably what we've gotten better at is understanding who we're working with and who we're working or who we're working with or who we're working for to understand whether or not the investment's going to be worth it. Right. Like choosing, choosing people, uh, which, you know, which is a lesson that I had to learn. Like I, re- I remember our very first deal that was over a hundred thousand dollars. So when we started, Pete and I would do deals for 500 bucks. You were a mechanic on the side of the road with a, with a broken garage door. We would take, and you had 500 bucks to do a logo or a website. We'd figure out how to deliver for you. And then little by little, we'd set the bar, 10,000, 30,000, 50,000. And then all of a sudden we hit a, we hit a deal for $100,000. I was going to close the deal for, I remember it was 111,000. And we were so excited. And I remember walk, getting off. I don't remember if it was in person or a phone call. I think it might've been a, uh, a phone call. It was the last meeting before sort of closing the deal. Like it was definitely closed. Like that's it, it's a wrap. And I walked away and I said, Pete, I think this is a duck, man. Like it's, it's, it walks like a duck. It quacks like a duck. Like this, this deal is going to kill us. And he was like, he's like, Dave, it's a lot of money. And I said, yeah, I think we should say no. And we did. And man, I felt so good about it. I, yeah. I, I was more excited. I, 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 you know that, I don't know if you, you know the rush, but like there's a rush you get when you land a deal, right? You're just like, you, like it's the touchdown dance time. I got more of a rush saying no. And after that, I was like, I want to measure how many no's we say every year and calculate it. You got a $50,000 budget. Sorry, it's not for us. Write it down. Right. And and I think that that, you know, honing that skill helps you in doing great work for people and over delivering. Right. Having deliver so so that's that's what makes us who we are and and always like i'm in the car and i'm like to my wife i'm like hey google google this google this i'm, I'm thinking about naming a company and i was like they need to do naming and i just really have a passion for that stuff even though i might not be the guy that's going to name the company and i'm like google psychology you know the top 100 psychologists uh in history and read me their names like i want to hear their names maybe their name one of their first names or last names is going to be uh, uh, a, a derivative of this name because it had something to do with mood. 
you know, and I'm in the car like on a weekend with my wife and my kids in the back. <laughs> now, you, know? That, you know what though, but that's what that, that, that constant movement of your brain is what, uh, what keeps you sharp. So I don't discount that at all. Exactly. And then, so now that leads us to, uh, to the next chapter of the book, which, you know, in 2014, we were, so we had moved, we were, we started off in one space. We moved to another space. We expanded a bunch of times in that building. We had this idea back in 2007 to take the building that we moved into. And it was like maybe 18,000 square feet. And we wanted to buy it and renovate it into like this really cool, sort of, I wouldn't call it a co-working space. Back then, we called it a collective, right? That we would just have like all different types of creative people, mark, you know, web developers, engineers would just rent space from us, private office or desk. And then Pete and Dave could just have a bunch of freelancers to tap so we wouldn't have to hire people. So it's sort of a selfish slash creative community, right? It's a commune. And long story short, the deal, we couldn't get the deal done. And obviously, you know, you're like trying to get a quick deal done. And then all of a sudden you got to get back to work. You know, that's sort of the balance. It's like, how do I do this and get this? So you're looking for that fast no. So we got to the fast no, we never did it. Fast forward seven years later, we're in a different building, a warehouse. And the owner, funny story, the owner was the Gutmans, which were the, uh, the first investors in WeWork. Oh, wow. Yes. Yes, Jack and Josh Gutman. Look them up. They were they 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 gave Adam Newman money when he was green. Was it Green Desk? Yeah, it was Green Desk, the first one. The Gutmans were in on Green Desk, and then they took a piece of WeWork. So Jack and Josh Gutman owned the warehouse across the street from where where I'm sitting today, and then they sold. They they were great people. <laughs> <laughs> they sold that building to this other guy from New York who came in and he was like a, a whirlwind, a tornado. And he said to me, hey, you're a great tenant. I see you have never missed your, your rent. You were expanded a couple times in the building. You, you seem like a great company, but listen, I'm not gonna renew your lease. So you got 20, 20, 22 months left on your lease. I'm not gonna renew it. And I was like, oh man, we're screwed. Um, and the building was like 160,000 square foot warehouse. And like, it was maybe 4% occupied. Right. So. I tried to advise him. So I had been involved in economic development in the city and I knew what people wanted. And I've been, you know, again, because I'm an observer of people, I already automatically, I know or have a pretty decent confidence of what people want. So I know what people want in the space. So I tried to guide him, made him some offers and he just wasn't having it. He's like, yeah, great. Not going to happen. So then uh, there was another business built business in the building called that was CrossFit New Haven. Uh, he was going to get kicked out too. And he had been there just as long as I was there. So that was about six years or something like that. And, and the two of us said, Hey, let's go look for a building. Let's just go buy something. He was in real estate. I knew he knew his, his way around real estate. Uh, so I felt more comfortable. I was tired of dealing with landlords because most of them are not quality people. Like they're not thinking about the world, the way I'm thinking about it, they're thinking about space and net operating income and return on their dollars. And I'm thinking about real estate in a, like, how can I make the city and state better? Right. right. So the two of us went looking for stuff. We couldn't find anything for one reason or another. And then one day in December, 2014, I was looking at a satellite image, a Google satellite image of the building directly across the street from the warehouse, which was a bus depot that was abandoned, literally like fence, 
barbed wire, broken windows, huge trees, weeds that are this thick already, like crazy. So you couldn't really see inside of it. You couldn't even see how what it looked like because it was just this big. It looked like a prison, like an old busted up prison. And uh, I was looking at it from the top. And when I saw it from the top, I saw just this whole different picture uh, that I had never seen before. And I was like, oh, there's a river back there. And it's, the property is huge, nine and a half acres. So I had this idea. I drew on a piece of paper and I sent it to Eric, my partner, the owner of the gym and my partner now. And I said, what if we did this? And I cut a piece of the building out and I put a, a atrium in and a stage. I saw some, I, like I put some staging in. I was like, we'll put like a little concert area where we could have like sh outdoor shows and stuff and restaurant and a gym and this and that. And I said it to him and he's like, he's like, I'm all in on it, on that idea. The next day I started to wrestle that, that dream. And I well, back to earlier in the podcast, my goal was like, I need to get to a no as fast as possible because I don't got time. I got 20, by this time we were at like 20 months left on the lease. So I got to move a bigger company now. I'm trying to grow it. I don't want to take my eye off the ball. I literally called up a bunch of people that were involved in economic development. I was like, hey, I got this idea. Can we meet today? And they were like, well, you know, when? And I was like, you know, like in the next half hour. And they, and, and they said, yes. They said, they said they'd take the meeting. I said, it's big. I got to talk to you today. Took the meeting. I pitched them. I showed them the concept. And I said, we can get this done. And they said, okay, well, we need to get a meeting with the mayor's head of economic development. And I said, okay, great. And they're like, well, you know, we'll see what, you know, what's your availability over the next two weeks. And I was like, no, I want to do that shit for lunch. Like I need it today. And literally they got the meeting for me and I just pushed and pushed and pushed fast forward. They liked it. I'll skip over some of the bullshit in the story. The state owned the asset, the state, the city got the state to RFP the a asset, which means uh, request for proposal for those listening that don't know that. So they put out a request for proposals to buy the asset. We went after it. We pitched this concept called district, which was this business campus that would be like the farm system, early stage businesses, high amenity property with co-working and all these features, education, all this great stuff. We wound up going against the guy that bought the building from the Gutmans. He, he went after the same asset because it was adjacent to his space. He pitched a uh, supermarket and a parking garage that would function as a parking area for both that building and his building. He bid $3.1 million for the asset and I bid a dollar. And we won unanimously. Just because what you're doing is better for the city. Because what we're doing is better for the city. And in order to get it now, keep in mind, I'm like a guy that has only been known for marketing, digital marketing, even, even better. Like I'm not even known for physical marketing, even though we've done tons of physical stuff, but like digital marketing is what I'm known for. I don't have any background in real estate. Eric's done residential real estate, uh, but they he's relatively been around the city for 20 some odd years and he's known in some circles, but not in others. And then here's this big shot developer from New York. It's like guaranteed money, tax bill, the whole nine yards. And we presented and told a story that was so different that they believed everybody believed. And I think at the same time they had, you know, a checks and balances. Cause they were like, if we give it to David and Eric and they fail, we just take it back. And if they did some work to it, even better. Right. 
So what the work was, it was dirty. So half the, half the property where the mechanics used to be for the buses needed remediation. So it was polluted with oil that had to be fixed. So we wound up negotiating a $6 million grant. So we got $6 million from the state to clean the property. So that's essentially free money. We cleaned it. And then we figured out a, a, a mechanism to finance the property, $17.5 million financing with only $800,000 in owner equity. And for those of you listening that don't know how real estate works, if you're building a 100,000 square foot building, if you've got a tenant that's going to stabilize that that building 50%, 60% occupancy or 100% occupancy, the banks will allow you to finance that building and you only have to put in like 35% equity. Right. If you've got nobody in that building, you've got to put in significantly more because it's called a speculative building. Yeah, so you got to have that anchor tenant. So we did not. And 800,000 into 17 and a half million is, is like, four percent right and understanding how to to deal with financing the banks and all that kind of stuff is something that you sort of learn as you go and you know and we got turned down by the big banks we got turned down by the medium-sized banks we got turned down by the small locals until we found that financing mechanism that worked and then we built out this space uh 111,000 square feet a minute today it's called district it's got uh, 19 spaces that make up over 250, uh, probably about 200, 200 uh, businesses. Um, we've got a fitness facility that has uh, that we own is District Athletic Club, which is a branded uh, asset and, and amenity. Uh, hit classes, yoga, spinning, bar classes, general gym, fitness, full sauna, shower capabilities is beautiful, open to the public and a free amenity to the members that come to the building every day. We've got a gorgeous co-working facility, 30,000 square feet with 140 some odd private offices in it. We've got a uh, software engineering school that we founded here, uh, teaching people how to so- do software engineering as a non- in, in a nonprofit setting. We've got various companies got a restaurant barbecue restaurant beer garden and an amphitheater so we've got like the hottest outdoor space in the city uh with you know awesome live events and that kind of thing really just getting warmed up because it's so new and we pulled it off 96 percent occupied today on the the total space and then covid's changed things quite a bit for us but interestingly enough what we're hearing in the market is that like we're teetering on a, on a on a balance scale right now, which is interesting because these assets are doing OK and these assets are, are doing good. And then this asset's not not doing that great. So you just take from Peter to pay Paul to to pay Pauline and make it work versus people that put all their eggs in one basket, one tenant. You know, the traditional way of doing real estate, they're all getting their asses handed to them right now. So we were very much ahead of the ahead of the game in, in this model. Yeah, but you're also kind of outside the box with others. I won't say exact models. District is obviously different than WeWork. It's different than Convene. It's different than any of those players. But none of those groups are uh, talking about occupancy north of ninety percent right now. Like no. not a single one of them. You're you're talking. You're you're looking at ten, maybe twenty if you're in a hot area. But no one's even close to what you guys are doing. And again. You did hedge your bets a little bit by by you know spreading yourself out over that property, but you had a lot more hits than misses. 
Yeah, no, for sure. And to be honest with you, we could have been at a hundred percent if we took everybody, but we've been really specific about curation. Sure. Right? So like we were talking about this the other day, like our identity, like we curated this audience. We made sure, like we've said, I've said again, back to saying no, right? Like, yeah. like we said no to so many people that wanted to be here because people would come here and say, Hey, you know, I want to move into district. And we would ask why. Right. Like th yeah. that's not a normal landlord question. No. It's usually what's your budget? How many square feet do you need? You know, but we would say why um, it still said, you know, for even co-working, it's like, why do you want to be in co-work? And that sort of sets the stage for people as to like what we really all about, which is, uh, you know, to what to my point, we're not into the we do care about NOI and profitability and, and cash flow and making return on our cash. But we care about the product and the community more. Right. That, that's that's been the key for us. And I think that, you know, again, being more human. Bringing it all to a to a close, I really hear two main themes here. One, you, you're not approaching any of the business that you've you know jumped into along the way with anything less than I'm going to succeed in this for the right reasons. Like I never once heard you talking about, you know, hustling somebody out of some cash to do this, or, you know, I'm going to bring in this client, even though I know it's going to be a pain in the ass or, or you know, whatever, just because I know I'm going to be able to build those hours to feed this team. You know, you're, you're always doing things for the right reasons and you're only doing things that are for the right reason. So it's around what you're saying no to. So I guess to close it out, I got to ask you, you know, you said you were counting the no's on these, you know, if you look back at, uh, at, at the no's that you've thrown out over the years, uh, any major regrets in there? Or do you feel like, you know, what you've got, what you have accepted is, was the right thing to accept at the right time? Yeah, no, I, so far, I mean, so, so far it's been great. So far we haven't had like that. Oh, oh shit. That was Uber. Right. Right. Like we haven't had that. In fact, you know, I, I hate to, there's an old saying, never stand on the ashes of, of a competitor. It doesn't make you look any taller. Sure. Right? Not that these people were competitors cause they weren't, they were potential clients, but you know, there's been situations where I've, I've, I've pissed people off for saying no. Right. Like, Right. Uh, whether they're asking me for an investment or they're asking me to finance them or they're asking me to take them on as a client or whatever the case may be, hearing no is hard for people sometimes. And anybody we've said no to, I can I can literally like they didn't even make it 30 days. They were out of business in six months. You know, they were gone in 12. They did some shady shit to somebody else. Also, something that I don't think is 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 something you get from McKinsey is I don't think you get intuition. I don't sure. think you get a lot of you know like my spidey senses in saying no are heightened. Um, probably because I mean, who knows? I, I, sometimes I like to say like walking down the street in New York when I was growing up, it was dangerous. Like you yeah. needed to be like, who's the, who is this guy in front of me, and is he going to try to pull some shit? Like, is yeah. he going to try and get me to run my pockets? Um, you know, I, 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 it might be better for me to either stand tall so he's afraid of me or cross the street because he looks crazy and he doesn't give a shit. Right. Sure. Um, you sort of hone those senses uh, to the point where in business, it's a little less scary. You're not worried about it. Our intu My intuition's pretty good. 
Um, for sure. And definitely like always, always go into things with the best intentions. Like my little, my daughter said to me the other day that she wants to, this wasn't the other day. This was probably like two years ago. She wanted to be, she wanted to start a podcast or she wanted to, to start a, a TikTok page or some, some, something like that. And I said, great. Why? And she said, because I want to be famous. And I said, you'll never be famous. And she said, why not? And I said, because you want to be famous. I was yeah. like, I was like, you famous people become famous because they're usually because they're passionate about something that makes them famous. Right. You can't be passionate about fame. You got to be passionate about singing, drumming, cooking, building, marketing, awesome sweaters. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is, you got to be passionate enough about it to put 10, 15 years into your overnight success. Exactly. Exactly. You got to put that You got to put the learning and the timing and the sweat and the disappointment into that work, into that word luck that everybody likes to use, right? Like luck is a, is a funny word like that. I, I tell people all the time, I'm, you know what words I love? I, I, I hate and love. I hate the word luck because it, it's misleading unless you describe it the way I did. Opportun searching for opportunities, working your ass off, learning all the time, right? That's luck. Crazy. People, one thing that I think sticks out to me is like a lot of people, when I used to walk them around this bus depot, used to call me, they, they call me crazy behind my back, I found out. And they would laugh at me. And there was stories of like, you hear about this, this shit Dave's working on? He's going to fail, right? He's, that's never going to work. Um, and they would call me crazy. And now, all of a, and then all of a sudden it got done and I'm a visionary. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a genius, right? So now when I hear the word crazy, I think it's a sexy word. Like it tells me that someone's like, you know, like you got to be crazy. You got to be audacious. You got to be a rhino. You got to be willing to ask somebody real, real hard questions without fear of retaliation. And if that's what crazy is, then I love crazy. If you want to learn more about Dave, Digital Surgeons or District, you can follow Digital Surgeons on Instagram at Digital Surgeons or District at District NHV. That's NHV for New Haven. Um, also on Instagram. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week.